Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachna. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Hello and welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first 50 minutes. I apologize for being late. This is Mind Shifters Radio, and today is Friday, October 27th, 2023. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go there, click on the two words that say start here in the upper left-hand corner. It will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. It talks about the narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for 19 years to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and to turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness and get access to a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet, contains an abbreviated version of the worksheet process, and a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. You can also just download the app right off that website. It's a simple P- or the uh, worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you'd like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. And we hope people do all that soon and often because it improves the quality of people's lives the more they apply these tools in their lives, and it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. If you have any of those to share with us, please do so. You can call us at 563-999-3581, or you can send us an email at tjh at mindshifters-academy.org, or you can email genie at j-e-a-n-i-e at yagain.org. That's w-h-y-a-g-a-i-n dot o-r-g. And we appreciate when people do that because it makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work. The intention we have here is to be a service And if you will let us know how this is landing for you or what we might do to help you make better, more effective and efficient use of these tools, we would greatly appreciate it. 
and I I'm wondering about our connection. I'm going to turn on the microphone for someone. I think it's Magda. Are you there to just say a quick hello, Magda? I am, and yes, I we have a great connection. Okay, I just uh, I've got the same phone number on the switchboard twice, and I oh. was late by about ten or eleven minutes getting started, so I just wanted to check. Yeah, so, I hope your processing is going well. We haven't talked since the last time you were on doing some rather intense processing. Yeah, and, and um, do you have? I'd like to say a little bit about that. Oh, well, please go right ahead. That was intense, and it was absolutely. Um, a milestone for me in my ability to understand better how I can work with the tools, you know, the worksheet, the forgiveness worksheet, and so forth. And I wanted to call in and let you know about something that happened yesterday. I didn't feel prepared, but now you've got me on the phone, so I'm going to go ahead anyway. Um, I had a um, uh, chemical stress test yesterday. And I did what I have done for many, many years, which is to create uh, that being a trigger for my, my fear of dying. And, and I started to read, funny thing, I took, a, there's a lot of time, uh, it takes about four hours to do the whole test. They do it in different stages and there are downtime where one sits in a waiting room waiting for the next part of the procedure. And so I took along the book, um, Choose Again, and I was reading the six steps to forgiveness uh, that, that he has in there, and I got to that part where it says, feel your feeling and intensify it. And so I really got very much stuck on that um, because of what had happened with us on last week, Monday, when I, um, I think it was last week. No, it was this Monday, wasn't it? <laughs> wow. Um, uh, the fact that you encouraged me when I started to shake and you encouraged me to go with that and intensify it, and I think that's the first time in my life I really, really went with it as completely as I did on Monday. I even got up and walked around with my phone shaking and and uh, gesticulating here and there. And, and, man, that made all the difference because then the images came up. Well, the same thing happened yesterday when I was in this tube that they that takes the pictures after they <clears throat> do the put the chemical in to um, uh, do the stress test on the heart, and then they take pictures of how the heart is reacting. And I had once upon a time had a very scary, which I interpreted as being scary, but it was just bringing up my fear. Um, and it was a situation where I was having that sort of test, but I was in this long cylinder where my whole body, my head and everything was inside. 
and <clears throat> I um, I really intensified the fear then, but I couldn't shake. They told me to be very still. So um, yesterday I was, it brought all that up again. Even though this machine was quite different and there wasn't very much of my body enclosed in it, my head was out and my legs were out and so forth. I'm making this a long story. Sorry. Um, what happened when I, I um, got into that prone position and he put me into the machine, I started to shake. Everything was shaking except my torso, which they told me to stay very still so they could get good pictures of what's going on in my heart. But my legs, my feet, my, my hands, um, my jaw, everything was shaking. So what I did when I went back after that, that was only 12 minutes, I went back to the waiting room to wait for the next part of the procedure, and I decided that I would tell myself a different story because what I remembered while I was in there in that 12 minutes was what happened when I was four years old, which I've talked about on this program before, where my aunt told me that dying is just going to sleep and not waking up again. So at four years of age, I was afraid to go to sleep because I would probably die or I might die. And my entire life I have resisted sleep. Well, at five years of age, I, what was the trauma at that time? Um, oh my, how interesting that I've forgotten it just now. Wow. It was a big trauma also about fear of dying. Oh, yes, yes. When I had my tonsils removed. And I remember intensely, exactly, seeing them putting the mask over my face. And my mother said she could hear me screaming down the hall. I realized yesterday what that was about. It was because they told me, don't worry, we're just going to put you to sleep. And, of course, to me that meant that I could die, especially since it was smelling. The ether at that time is what they used, and it smelled so horrible I was sure I was going to die. So these two traumas, medical people, both times are known not my, no, never mind, my aunt was not a medical person, but it was all about dying. So the story I told myself when I was sitting in the waiting room, I'm finally getting to it, is I was safe then and I didn't know it. I was perfectly safe and I didn't know it, so I scared myself. I am safe now and I am perfectly protected. And so I kept saying that mantra over and over again, I am safe. And when I went back in for the second set of pictures, it wasn't shaking anymore. It was totally amazing. The ability to feel my feelings, my emotions in my body and let them happen because I, no, I had no control over them the first time. I tried to stop shaking when I was in that machine the first time. I couldn't. My body was shaken, um, except for my torso. I don't know how I did that, but the mind is pretty darn powerful. Anyway, um, to me, it's all a miraculous 
big step toward my awareness of how important it is to actually feel the feelings that come up because that is what opened the door and the next door and the next door for me last Monday and also yesterday. So thank you for encouraging me to stop talking at that time and just shake. That was fabulous. I'm finally done. Wonderful. Well, there is, you know, we talk so much about trying to figure it out and relying on the conscious logical mind and how that is a trap. And we don't have a lot of good practical teaching about what do we do if we don't rely on it. And, And that's why somatic based therapies have become so popular and so beneficial for helping people resolve traumas and breath work which has people focusing on their physical process of sucking in the air and stretching out the muscles and holding it and releasing it slowly and because that helps me just being aware of a different level of the energy system and yeah. and that you know, so often these different parts of my energy system are holding the keys to my release, to my going with the flow, to my integrating or healing, whatever words you want to use. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, it's an excellent example. I mean, if you read things from Peter Levine, he's one of the, authors who's written so much so beautifully about the somatic process in healing trauma and the benefit of staying with what's happening and letting the energies move and shaking and processing these things through there's a whole level of wisdom that's available through mm-hmm. the body that we're not mm-hmm. taught about yeah. and so you know this is just a, a wonderful example of what can happen if we do two things one is cancel uh, the fascination with trying to figure it out at the conscious logical level and the other one is learning to step into something else some other part of the energy flow whether that is with the physical energies or the in, intuitive energies, like, you know, I get I get this flash of insight or I get mm-hmm. this urge to go do something. And if I'm not accepting the fact that that may be valid and giving myself permission to step into it and act on it or follow it, then I cut myself off to, you know, tremendous amount of, input, benefit, healing, integration. You know, this is how many times we have to say it in different ways. We're not a physical body, right? We are in in this what we call a physical realm, but it's all just energy. And we are this consciousness being, not a physical being. We are a consciousness being and having a physical experience. So I just have to encourage people based on the kinds of things you're reporting 
I see it on a regular basis in my private sessions. And um, there's a lot more to be addressed and tapped into and for us to get comfortable with than just our conscious logical mind. And yet most of us haven't been introduced to it. So congratulations for, for being willing to go and get not just introduced to it, but play around with it. And trust, trust it. Trust it. If it's coming up, it's just like a, a thought. Um, you know, if that thought keeps appearing, there's a reason. Uh, you know, there's an issue perhaps that needs to be forgiven. So the feelings are the same way, and the physical reactions are the same way. And so, yeah, I, I really learned a lot about trusting all of that yesterday. Yeah, thank you. Well, and there's a big reason that the Way of Mastery in its fifth lesson, uh, titled Keys to the Kingdom, has, you know, allowance, acceptance, surrender, openness, you know, tuning into uh, the flow of life energies that's not just the physical and then choosing to have Mm -hmm. my intention focused on that throughout the day and then accepting, allowing, and surrendering to be taught by that. There's just a tremendous amount of our existence that's mediated by those other energies that are not just physical and not just conscious logical. Mm-hmm. You, you know, mm-hmm. you, you basically open yourself to a world of life experience when you are willing to experiment with that stuff. Totally agree. Totally. Well said. Oh, so I'm pretty, I'm pretty high today, so I'm, I'm aware that the next level will come up whenever it needs to. Um, and I feel more trusting about being able to handle it um, willingly and see what the, what the gift is with whatever the next issue is or the next level of this one. Excellent. Well, then that's the thing I was just going to say is that willingness is the key there. When, when I know I've reached a new level of vitality, I want to be able to allow myself to enjoy that. And I also want to be willing to handle whatever comes next. If I have a wonderful day or two and then I wake up the next day feeling like Michael <laughs> says, like I got hit by a Mack truck, I just want to be willing to continue to do the kinds of things that brought me to the, the new level of vitality rather than uh-huh. escaping from that sensation that I might call negative and, uh, or, or trying you know, to avoid feeling whatever I'm feeling. I just want to stay willing and open. I think this may be the first time since I've started to use Michael's tools uh, in the forgiveness process. I think this might be the first time that I'm actually looking forward to the next adventure, knowing that there will be one. Because I was definitely one of those folks who said, yeah, I thought I was done and I'm not done and I'm pissed off, you know. (laughs) But um, now I realize, yeah, we're never done and that's fine because every, every lesson, every learning is taken, taking this being, this soul, this spiritual entity to the next level. So, okay, 
I, I do feel like I'm done today. I want to listen to whoever's, um, whoever else is going to call in or to your reading. And thank you All again, right. Dr. Cole. Thank you so well, much. You're entirely for welcome and deserving. Thank you for commenting. I'll mute you so you can listen in to whatever unfolds in the second part of the show. Um, again, I was uh, delayed by at least 10 minutes getting on the show today. I felt blessed that uh, whatever's happened with Blog Talk Radio, um, they allowed me to start the show late. Uh, there have been times in the past where if I wasn't here in the first five minutes, they basically canceled the the hour, and I would have had to um, open up a new show app and create a new episode, but that wasn't necessary. So we're here, and we've got about 27, 28 minutes left to uh, have a conversation. Um Call-in number is 563-999-3581. If you're willing to share with us or have a comment or a question, once you call that number, press 1 on your phone, and then we'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I'll turn on that microphone and announce it by your area code. I have had um, lots and lots of intense uh, work and emotions going on um so um i'm open i'm open to comments or questions i was having some thoughts the other day about where do we go from here i mentioned that we seem to have more of a an active participation when we read something and there's been a conversation about perhaps going back and reading the way of mastery again there's also been um the 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 connections buzzing around in my mind about what's being offered what's being talked about when Michael Rice or Michael Singer or Guy Finley talks about um a different way to live or connecting to uh, an inner joy or an inner peace that's never ending that's always present always available and and um last night in the support group we listened again to the Michael Singer podcast where he talks about several messages just come through. I just wanted to make sure none of them were about technical difficulties since there is some glitch going on with the blog talk radio. Um, Michael Singer's podcast where he talks about being able to access a bliss state all day, every day, no matter what's going on, even if your body's in physical pain, even if your heart is screaming in sadness, to be able to talk about underneath that what's happening and so we we had somebody request that we listen to the podcast and and request that I interrupt it and do some explanations or clarifications along the way 
and I haven't listened back to it yet, but when it was happening, it seemed to me to be a really good stirring up of the pot, uh, slightly different perspectives. And so I will edit that out from the uh, group last night. So there's no you know, identifying other people, but it's just the Michael Singer podcast with my commentary and um, and make that available on the mindshiftersacademy.org website under, um, I probably will put it at the top of the best of audio files page. And, um, and I'll try and do that before the weekend is over. But I offer that because it's so useful from my perspective to go at these things over and over again with a slightly different perspective or open to learning another little deeper connection because it is so illogical for the conscious logical mind to even conceive that there's another way of experiencing life other than through its conscious logical framework. And yet, every frame of reference, every even the... The, the 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 thing we call logic is just a human creation and it's been created in a certain style within a certain language within a certain culture and so you know uh, while i've had people argue well it's just logical and you can't argue with logic well of course you can because logic is just an argument that humans made up and the rules of logic are just made up by human beings. And the premises on which logical arguments are based can either be accurate, partially accurate, completely inaccurate. And the value of the logical argument and its ability to predict outcomes in life is no better than the premise, the truth of the premise upon which it is based. So, you know, my conscious logical mind really has to work and stretch to be able to let in the possibility that it's completely wrong even when everything it is showing me tells it that it's true. And as we talk about in this work, one of the best ways to get cut through all of that is to recognize that when I'm in pain when i'm in the in the middle of an experience of a negative emotional state that's my signal that i'm in error nothing else i don't need the logic i don't need it to be proved to me i can just use that like i would use you know an alarm system in a building where there's you know, a fire alarm and a smoke alarm, and it just starts going off. I don't need to ask myself, well, is this real or should I leave? I can just use it to go get myself out of the building and wait until there's an all clear, or I don't have to be the one to dig around and find out is there actually a fire and smoke and where and what's the source of it. I can let that, leave that to the experts. I can just use the blaring alarm as a signal to get myself to safety. Well, what what is safety 
when I have a negative emotional state active in my mind. It's take a breath and turn the focus inside. It's, as Michael Rice would talk about, if I'm driving a car in the middle of the night in the mountainous regions of eastern the United States, and it's pitch black, and all of a sudden my lights go out, what's the safe thing to do? Stop the car. Well, I've driven these roads a lot, and I'm pretty sure that I was just about 60 feet from a a sweeping right-hand turn. Maybe I should just count down, let's see, I'm going 30 miles an hour, and maybe I should... No, it doesn't make any sense to keep driving when my lights are out. It doesn't make any sense for me to keep speaking, spinning in thought, or taking an action when I'm in a strong negative emotional state. The thing to do is use that as an alarm to tell me that I'm driving with my lights out, stop the car, quit speaking, stop acting, shift the focus of my attention from whatever my mind is telling me because whatever my mind is telling me when I have an active negative emotional state present, it's a lie. It's a series of lies. It's at best at best, only partially true, whatever my mind is telling me. So my conscious logical mind can't even begin to wrap itself around the idea that there's a way to live my life constantly connected to a state of, of joy, bliss, safety, because my conscious logical mind is always looking around the corner for the next danger, for the next sign of something to run away from or attack or blame. So in the Michael Singer work, you know, last night he started to talk and he said, look, you, you are not a body, right? You, you, you have this consciousness. You are an ocean of consciousness, he says at one point later in the talk. And yet, you have an experience in the body. And what's the body? It's like a vehicle that you use to, to motor around or drive around or ambulate around on this planet in the physical realm. Why do we do that? Well, because it gives us access to experiences that we can't have when we're not in the body. So then the next thing is he says, in this body that you're, you have to, to move around on the planet, there's a computer, a computer. It's called the brain. Or, in Michael Singer's work, he calls it your mind. And he says, he talks about the mind very much the way Michael Rice talks about the carbon-based memory, the physical brain in your skull. It's just there to record data that's put into it and spit it back out when it's called up the mind in michael singer's work doesn't do any thinking it's just like the carbon-based memory in michael rice's work it can't think it just works on the law of resonance and the mind will tell you all kinds of things that have nothing to do with your true nature and your ability to tap into this fundamental, ever-present sea of goodness, sea of life, bliss state, whatever you want to call it, connection to the one mind, 
Your conscious, logical mind can't do that for you. It can't experience it. It can't get you there. There's no amount of crunching numbers or doing logical inferences and following logical flow and testing out premises upon which logic is based on that will ever take you to that bliss state. And he says, so here's this mind and it's part of the equipment you have in this body and when you start to experience something that you don't like, you go to your mind and you say, what's going to make me happy? And he says, if the mind had any intelligence in it, it would say to you, what are you asking me for? You're the one that just disconnected from the sea of, 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 of love, from, from the bliss state, right? Don't ask me how to get happy. All I know to do is this adding columns of numbers and spitting back what's been programmed into me. But the mind doesn't have that level of intelligence, so it spins, and it does what David Bohm would call sustained incoherence. It keeps spitting out. Here's what's going to make you happy. Go get this. Here's what's going to make you happy. Go eat that. Ingest this. Grab this person in their private parts. Get this person to love you. Get that person to hire you for this job. Play this music. Buy this big stereo. Acquire that property over there. Get a bigger car than your neighbor. That's what your mind is always going to tell you, which is insanity. And if there was any intelligence in the mind and the brain and the carbon-based memory that Michael Rice calls it, it would tell you, what are you asking me for what will make you happy? You were born of this bliss state, of this energy of love and creation. You come from it. You're made of it. You are it. It's infinitely accessible to you in each new present moment. But that's not what happens. The mind starts spitting out, okay, try this, do that, run over here, jump down there, lift up this, go over there, look behind this rock. All the while, underneath all of this, there is this existence of life. There is this creative flow. There is this one mind, this one consciousness. And if you can cancel everything you think you want, your trifling treasures put away and leave a clean and open space for the Christ mind, for the one mind, for this awareness of connection to everything that goes beyond words, that goes beyond language, it goes beyond the conscious logical mind's ability to comprehend it. That's why they say it's the peace that passes all understanding. That's always there. That's available for you to tap into and you won't ever think your way into it. So how do you get there? How do you live in that bliss state? Well, I have to shift the focus of my conscious awareness off of my psyche, off of my personality, off of my ego, off of all these thoughts about who I think I am, away from all the thoughts that my mind will serve up about what I need and who I need to contact and 
what I need to acquire to be happy. I have to shift my focus of my consciousness off of that and back to my true nature as this Michael Singer later in the in the talk calls it the you as an ocean of consciousness. Focus your awareness on what Michael Rice has at the top of his seven step worksheet on the truth that my essential nature, my human life, my very being is love, this energy of creation expressing in form. Focus my awareness on that. And then, he he goes on to say, then you just learn to, quote, handle, close quotes, everything that moves through your mind and everything that moves through your heart because you recognize it's not your true nature. It doesn't have the capacity to affect you deeply at any fundamental level. And it's just part of the show. It's part of the game. It's part of the play in the kingdom, as the way of mastery would say it. And it isn't anything that you need to do anything about. You can just watch it unfold and appreciate it as the flow of life. And understand you don't have to be driven from pillar to post, as Guy Finley would say, to try and justify it, make a reaction to it, change it. And you might even ask at a different level, ask that consciousness when you're sitting in that seat of consciousness, ask it to teach you something new about this flow of life that can't be learned at the physical level, at the conscious logical level, and just open yourself to allow. Breathe, soften, allow, surrender, and rest in the humility of knowing, look, I, don't, I didn't create myself. I don't know when I was created. I don't know what anything is or is for. It's silly of me to try and sort all of that out. So I'm going to soften and breathe and allow and shift the focus of my conscious awareness from all of these thoughts, all of this physical stuff, all of these emotions, and shift it over to my true nature as love or my true nature, as Michael Singer calls it, an ocean of consciousness connected to every other spark of consciousness and just enjoy the show and watch what unfolds and what's going to unfold goes beyond anything I could possibly predict but if I'm not running away into drugs and alcohol if I'm not using rage to numb me out or distract me from what's occurring if I'm opening myself to be taught by the moment I start to see, and I have patients on a regular basis that see over and over again these massive, miraculous gifts because they just stay with life and they allow and they surrender and they accept and they cry and they breathe and they watch the impulse to rage and they refuse to rage And as they settle back away from the impulse to rage, they tap into a level of strength they never could have imagined. 
and they ask for help and they find that that leads to more strength than they ever could have imagined, even when they come from family situations or cultural biases that say don't ask for help or don't admit weakness, what they learn is that the more they ask for help, the stronger they feel. The more they allow and soften and ask to be taught, the more their life changes for the better in ways they never could have predicted. So I I will do what I can to make good on that commitment to uh, edit and then upload that audio from last night's support group, the, the part that is simply the Michael Singer podcast and my com- my running commentary on it, my intermittent commentary on it, and put it on the mindshiftersacademy.org website on the page labeled Best of Audio Files, and I'll put it at the top of that page. So, 563-999-3581, we've got about seven or eight minutes left. Uh, this little sidebar that I just went on, um, is it resonating for anyone, making any sense? Um, do I need to back up and clarify how we got on this? I think what I was saying is that I've had some thoughts about maybe going back and reviewing parts of the Christian Sundberg book, A Walk in the Physical, where he's talking about his thoughts about why we would come here, because that's one of the things the conscious logical mind spits out at us frequently, either on this Internet show or in our support groups, is people say, okay, if there's this constant bliss and we have access to it we're not in the physical, why in the heck would we ever come into a physical experience? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. Well, yeah, I can see that. You, I can see how you could build a a rational set of thoughts that lead you to the conclusion that there's no sense in that whatsoever. But that doesn't mean that there's no value in it, and that doesn't mean there's no way to look at it from a, a, a slightly different or a radically different perspective that can see extraordinary value. Now, it doesn't fit in the conscious logical realm very solidly, clearly, That doesn't mean there's no value in it. One of the things that um, Christian Sundberg postulates is that this soul, this entity that you are, this consciousness without a physical body, is interested in growing and expanding its experience in ways that it can't do if it remains in the non-physical state. It can't taste ice cream. It can't feel love the way you can or passion, um, the, the physical sensations of sex or uh, tremendous release when you run a marathon or you hit a personal best in your weightlifting or your golf game. The, the, the non-physical realm can't experience those things. So the theory they put out is we come here simply to be able to expand our capacity for new experiences. And one of the biggest 
driving factors from the non-physical, as proposed by Christian Sundberg, is that we want to grow our capacity to choose for love and to move away from fear in ever more challenging and difficult situations. So it's like lifting weights at a gym. We start with, can I stay loving when uh, I'm surrounded by friends and family who love and respect me? And yet maybe somebody, um, you know, uh, puts the wrong coffee in the coffee maker or doesn't put a filter in it. Can I stay loving in that situation? Where it's, you know, most of us would say, well, it's just a slight irritation. But remember, the slightest irritation is connected to my deepest rage. So then I come into the physical and I practice staying loving in easy situations. I have a nice set of parents and siblings that I get along with for the most part and I've got enough food to eat, etc. And then after I've done that for a few lifetimes and I've gotten pretty good at staying loving, then I might choose a lifetime where I don't have very good parents. I don't have loving siblings. I really don't have a lot of food to eat. Maybe I live in a war zone. And I'm why would I choose that? Well, maybe I'm choosing that just to exercise my ability to be loving and choose for love in ever more challenging situations. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why don't you just stay in the bliss state? From the conscious logical mind, from the physical perspective, that's what we hear most from people. And there isn't any conscious logical answer to that because... It may not make any sense. It's all just a way of thinking about things, just trying to help us make sense of it. And yet, those people who've been in those situations, more and more challenging situations, and practiced choosing for love, they write some of the most wonderful books. They, they give some of the most powerful examples. They say they're glad that they learned and grew through those difficult situations. And and while they say, you know, the ones that are the most balanced that I've ever had access to, while they say they wouldn't wish that stuff on their worst enemy, they wouldn't trade the learning that they've experienced from going through these difficult situations. And this, this includes people who have had to help both parents go through agonizing death in, in, in you know, near succession or at the same time. It includes people who had children that were born with, you know, such profound disabilities that they needed 24-hour care, uh, you know, seven days a week their entire life. And yet those people who've gone through that and stayed loving have consistently said things to me like I wouldn't trade it for the world I wouldn't I I wouldn't want to have gone through life without this experience and of course there's all kinds of people who go through those things without choosing for love and they complain about every little ache and pain and every little inconvenience and 
it would seem as though their life is miserable. Even though half the people who look at that from the outside would say, wow, I'd trade with them in a heartbeat because of this and that physical factor or financial factor, etc. So who knows the truth of it? I don't know. We don't know the truth of any of this stuff. We're just out here exploring, and we're grateful for everybody who's tagging along in that exploration. I remind us that this is a Friday, so um, we'll be back again on Monday. I also remind us that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love, and everything else is false. And I will turn on the microphone for and welcome Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Tim. I appreciate you turning my mic on. I'm actually on another screen on my computer, and for some reason it won't let me out. So I couldn't turn it well, on. And uh, it's, it, we've had a little uh, glitch or two. I started the show at least 10 minutes late because of what was going on in my life. It did let me on, but, you know, as you'll see on the switchboard, there's at least one number that's up there twice. And But I did have okay. a conversation with Magda earlier and um, so that I knew it was working. So have a wonderful show and a great weekend. Thank you. Thank you. You too. Welcome, everybody, to the second hour of MindShifters Radio. And today is Friday, October 27th, 2023. And their call-in number is 563 563- Nine 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 three five eight one, and press one, and that puts you into queue to talk to us. And we would love to hear your comments and questions, because that makes this your show. And uh, yesterday we had Michael started reading from the new article that he wrote, or is writing. <laughs> He's been writing it for a while, and uh, I'm not sure if it's at a completion point enough where he can continue reading it today or not. We'll find out when he gets on the show. And like we had announced yesterday, if there is any article or subject that, like, you know, we just finished the article on the gentleman who said that we did not have free will. And we read that. We commented on it. We gave um, our commentary based on this work. And so if you have an article or a conversation going on and you would like to hear our point of view or our guidance or explanation, then please let us know. We would love to take it in that direction because it has definitely brought on more conversation from the audience than when we just do a monologue or pick our own topics. It seems to go very well. So we'd love to hear from you. If you've got something, please send it to me at Jeannie, J-E-A-N-I-E, at whyagain.org, and we will put it into the hopper. I'm going to say welcome, Michael. Thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're here. And a shout-out to the gentleman who uh, suggested that article to us and opened space for us to, uh, to do the last four sessions around the idea of free will. And if there's something in particular, you know, that you've come across regarding this work that you'd like to hear us expound on in terms of how does this idea or that idea from whatever source you got fit into this work, you know, we'd, we'd love to hear it. It would, uh, I think it, uh, the last couple of days really expanded the conversation in important directions 
that otherwise we'd probably never hear and never have the brain cells for. I was talking to someone yesterday and they were talking about how they were offering some of the Aramaic ideas, someone who was in a fairly fundamentalist place and they were offering some of the Aramaic ideas and uh, it was just like there was just no, people just had a blank stare, no response. And it's like, well, yeah, if the mind doesn't have the requisite content energetically to produce a particular reality, then the mind can't produce that reality. You know, Yeshua said it 2,000 years ago. He said, you've got to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear. I, I think we can safely assume that most everybody in his audience had recall eyes and ears. So he wasn't talking about that. He was saying you could have the brain cells. And our listening always comes from the brain cells that fire in us. You know, I I use the example uh, oftentimes. You've heard me use it before, but it fits here again. Let's imagine that we're doing a, a series of workshops in your your hometown, and and uh, you are the best translator of Russian into English and English into Russian in the world. And we hear from somebody from Russia who wants to come and do the workshop. And so I contact you and say, hey, I know you've got an extra room in your house and that you have this Russian skill of speaking Russian. Would you be willing to pick this person up at the airport, host them for the week, translate for them, and uh, and take them back to the airport? And you're like, yeah, I'd love to do it. That would be great. And so we have a week of workshops. We go out for dinner a couple times with this fellow. And, you know, I mean, we just really have a good time. And at the end of the week, as you're getting ready to take him back to the airport, I say, would you please let him know that I think he's really cool. And you turn to him in your best Russian and tell him that Michael thinks he's got a low body temperature. Now, you said exactly what I said. But what you said had nothing to do with the meaning that I held in my brain cells. So in my brain cells, I'm, you know, Western civilization cool means, hey, you're good, you're, you're awesome, you're, you know, we like you. But, and, and this is where the responsibility for listening comes in, if the brain cells that fired in this gentleman who was the translator were cool means low body temperature, you know, he speaks Russian, he's not maybe that acclimatized in the West, and so the word cool has no, there are no brain cells in him to hear the word cool as a descriptor for somebody that we really like. And so his listening provides him a translation. And that translation is something to do with body temperature. And, of course, saying that someone is really cool has absolutely nothing to do with temperature. English idiom. And so the Aramaic language, so that's that's an example of an idiom. And the Aramaic language is just absolutely, totally, and completely rife with idioms. It's filled with idioms. And the thing about an idiom is you can't translate an idiom. You've got to know the meaning behind it. You can't translate words, the word cool, and come up with an accurate meaning for what I had said about this gentleman from Russia. And so... If one is speaking about Greek ideas, like for instance, if in Aramaic I say to you, you must forgive as to that pain, and what Charlie did 
then your brain might translate that because of the brain cells that would fire in you as, I have to forgive Charlie. And I would say, no, 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 not at all. Charlie's part of the conversation because Charlie was the trigger for the pain that came up in you. But what I want you to hear is I'm inviting you to forgive, to remove the pain that's moving in you, not to let Charlie off the hook because that pain is moving in you. Now we've got a whole different game going on. And around virtually every key idea from the Aramaic, as we talked about the other day, we talked about how there are these five spiritual faculties and that the the non-being mind or the ego mind has a cheap copy of each of the spiritual faculties. Well, so it is in the Greek language. There is a cheap copy for everything that's real in the spiritual dimension. You know, in, in the spiritual dimension, love describes the human, the fact of human life. In the Greeks, it's got something to do with sexual athletics or letting somebody else off the hook or, or you know, putting your head on the chopping block after you've forgiven them and, and letting them abuse you or self-sacrifice. It's got all kinds of meanings that are not relative to the Aramaic. So when we're speaking about the word love here, we're using a word that's describing you as your human essence, not something you're going to do to somebody else or something you're going to give to somebody else or something you're going to get from somebody else. So you could go through a litany of all of the key ideas from the Aramaic and find the world rife, the Greek world rife with cheap copies, but you won't find the the very thing itself. And once you realize that, then you start checking out, well, which world are we talking about? In the ancient scriptures, they talked about the world of the mind of man. And then they talked about the world of the plan of God. Now, that's not a religious idea. It's just the difference between, you know, the, the language of the Aramaic would be about what there is in the plan of the creator, what exists in the actuality, where the mind of man, which is spoken about, is simply what, what uh, perceptual constructs does the human mind generate in regard to any given idea. And so if we're stuck in the limited perception of the human mind, chances are we're not going to be able to reach very far into the dimension of our true being, our true actuality. So I hope that uh, helps to clarify at least a little bit where we're going with this and why we're carrying on this ongoing long-term conversation. Now, it's been going on for 12 years, and why would we want to carry it on five days a week, an hour to two hours a day for 12 years, and continue? Because we're looking to provide a space for people who speak one language, the language of our Western culture, to understand and be able to have their minds generate realities based in the culture in which Yeshua originally taught his teaching, the only culture in which it has real meaning. So he says you've got to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, And that's what we're talking about. We're we're building brain cells. We're not talking about building new physical structure. 
When I talk about building brain cells, I'm talking about the fact that every cell in our structure is, in this language we're speaking, a brain cell. That is, every cell stores information. And that information, when it fires in the future, will reflect the content that's been build, built into brain cells through the process of information taken in by the senses. And one of the key concepts here is that everything that has to do with the truth is going to energetically be connected to active present love. Even if some of the most despicable things are happening in the world. The mind that has brain cells that are keyed to love are going, is going to go to constructs based in love. And everything based in hostility and fear in any of its forms, sadness, grief, rage, condemnation, gossip, slander, vengeance, anything based in that is based in the false world and by definition means we're stuck in, quote-unquote, the mind of man. The mind of man has generation upon generation upon generation of suffering, of pain, of trauma, of turmoil, of rage, of sadness, of grief. I just watched a video this morning, and I'm looking for the name of it here. Just give me one second. Shattered Dreams of Peace, Israeli-Palestinian relations after Oslo. So Shattered Dreams on, on YouTube, if you want to take a look at it. It's a two-hour uh, PBS special. Shattered Dreams of Peace, Israeli-Palestinian relations after Oslo. And I'm about, uh, well, it's an hour and 54 minutes, and I'm an hour and 43 minutes into it. And... The tragedy of how close the different accords came to creating peace, something I, I didn't know I was aware of. You know, there were Camp David Accords and there were Camp David meetings and there were Rye. There were several different peace efforts. I, I didn't really understand the intricate role, and it actually elevated my view of uh, Bill Clinton significantly when I saw the role that he played in consistently and persistently working toward bringing these parties together. And as you watch it, it's just so tragic how close they came. And sometimes over the actions of just one person who lived in hostility or fear, a whole delicate structure that would have led to serenity in the region just collapsed. It's like, oh, my gosh, how crazy is this? And it, for me, reinforced the need for the ability of people to remove from their minds those things based in hostility or fear. Because when the stress is up and the chips are down, everybody, everybody who hasn't done that work is going to go back to the dynamics of their power person. And when you look at the kind of violence that historically has taken place, the power person dynamics are a travesty. They are a tragedy inside of the family system. 
And then once expressed in the family system, if someone doesn't have the tools of forgiveness to free oneself of those power person dynamics, which have usually been going on for many, many, many generations, how when there are millions of people who are raised in those kind of power person dynamics, how is it going to happen that everybody's going to come to one mind and one accord and actually save their children from this blistering hatred and vengeance and murder, just a wholesale slaughter that's taken place. You know, one of the uh, phrases in the Beatitudes, if you remember the session we did on the Beatitudes back, oh, probably a year ago now, one of the key ones there that always comes to mind when I watch something like this is the phrase that, that says that this neural structure inside of us that was designed to guide us in happy, to happiness and well-being only becomes our conscious possession, only becomes active, and the, the whole of the Beatitude shows you what the, uh, the how to achieve that, but one of them is just and fair behavior between people. Do you effort for just and fair behavior or do you just effort to win? And just and fair behavior is one of the keys to being granted access to the the deepest guidance in you toward true happiness and well-being. And yet the world so often is looking for advantage. And and when I say the world, I talk about myself as well. It's work that layer by layer, level by level, I realize I have to do, and we all have to do, if we're ever going to have access to that deepest place within ourselves. So moving forward, well, actually, before we move forward, I was just uh, about halfway through the article on what was happening and or what what my proposal was or what brain cells we would have to build to climb out of the hole of the kind of violence that's taken over there but before we do that let's see if anybody has a thought for us uh, if you're out there in listener land if you're on one of those stations where we can't see you our call in number is 563-999-3581 call that number and you're listening to the show And if you have a question, you just push one, and we'll be having a conversation. So before we move forward into the next half of this article, uh, I'm just going to see if anybody's got a thought for us. Jeannie, do you have any thoughts to add, sweetie? No, I don't. We've got a full I know you've been today. Working, so yeah, yeah. I know you've been working diligently on your book. Yeah. Um no, Any it's thoughts kind of come up the around the idea thing. of you know, just we, and fair behavior? Yeah, just that, you know, we need to, you know, just like you said, watching the Shattered Dreams of Peace uh, brought in some more information and new awareness about what went on, you know, in the previous era and leading up to what we're seeing now. And, you know, we have to know our history or we're going to repeat it and keep repeating yeah. it. And, um, you know, one of the things that I've been digging into is talking about the just and fair behavior and 
even an article that um, you actually kind of directed me into looking it up and, and where police uh, work originally began back, you know, in the early centuries or whatever that they were to keep the slaves in, in order. And it's crazy. I mean, they've evolved from that, but in there's some, still got to be circles. some of that mindset hanging out. Yeah, I think the uh, that it's in, inbred in the genes now. The uh, that to a great degree, as we look at how policing is carried out. You know, if you look at it, we could totally and completely eradicate the police state and have a, have peace officers throughout the land, and that would be people who would have done their work, who would be conscious beings, who could walk into a community, walk into a conflict, and know how, instead of threatening, bullying, pulling out their guns, and shooting people, could be, and and there are many peace officers out there, I acknowledge them, there's some, uh, just some wonderful uh, posts on YouTube that I've actually put on my Facebook page over the years where a policeman catches somebody in a crime and ends up talking to them and finding out what their, a mother, one comes to mind of a mother who just had kids and, and, and the police officer <laughs> goes to the bank and takes some money out and goes and buys a family food instead of charging her with a crime. You know, this is this is the work of, of a peace officer as opposed to the law enforcement that is a mindset of sadly hostility and fear. And and it's actually you know, if you look into police education, a great deal of it is you are the thin blue line between the good people and the bad people, and you're the only one that can save everybody. And it's presented in the form of war. And then we look at the last few years, how the military has turned over so much of its technology, its vehicles, and its weapons to police in the streets of the towns of America. And uh, to me, that's a travesty. It, it is, you know, based on a, a lesson we've talked about many times from the Course in Miracles, in my defenselessness, my power and safety lie. And yet, what, what's happening in policing is, and as we started out this article uh, yesterday with uh, uh, Job and his statement of it, basically, that which I feared most has come upon me. When I put uh, the amplifier of fear and dread behind a thought complex of a fantasized negative outcome, I get to create that outcome. And we need for people to have the brain cells to recognize how they work as creators and how to clean up the mess because the mess that's been built over hundreds of years in this country and thousands of years in the world, it's it's time for cleanup if we're ever going to have a safe, nurturing place for our children and our grandchildren and their children to grow up. And to me, that's more important than anything else. Is there anything from either of those articles you've got handy you'd like to share? Uh, Let me open one up here. And, and if One any of, of this conversation starts anything for you, please put up a hand. Go for it, Gene. 
One of them is a lady who is uh, director over the Office of Tribal Justice, and she's presenting to the um, committee of the United States Senate Committee on Indian Affairs. And this talks about um, American Indians are victims of violent crime at rates more than twice the national average, far exceeding any other ethnic group in the country. Nearly one out of every four Native Americans between the ages of 18 and 24 is a victim of a violent crime, the highest per capita rate of violence of any racial group considered by age. Um, The account for nearly 10% of violent crimes prosecuted by the Justice Department. Indians fall victim to violent crime at about two times the rate of African Americans, two and a half times that sustained by Caucasians, and four and a half times that of Asian Americans. And it goes on down and talks about, you know, that, uh, let's see, where is it? Gave the number of how many before the age of 18 are raped and that their ability to handle, you know, to like arrest or whatever, that if it's a uh, reservation uh, officer, law enforcement officer, they are not allowed to detain or arrest or anything if it's not another Native American. Well, most of the people that uh, commit the crimes are not Native American, and they're taking it out on. So the hands are tied of the law enforcement on the reservations, and then they attempt to get the state to come in with their law enforcement. And most of the time, their answer is that, uh, you know, they're too busy or that they're tied up with other things or whatever. And so there's so many of them for Native Americans that goes, you know, they just turn their head. They go the other way. They're unresolved. Nobody goes after it. They don't try to solve it. And, um, you know, it, it started a long time ago. It's like that's current. However, if you go back, you know, we're taught... Um, that the Native Americans and the colonists had this awesome Thanksgiving dinner and everybody was wonderful, but there's, there was like, I, I don't have that article right in front of me, but it was up to like 5 million uh, Native Americans that were taken captive. And because they knew the land here in this country, what they would do, you know, if they escaped, they could stay away or they could get away easier than the African-American slaves. And so what they did was they shipped the Native Americans over to Spain or France or other places where they had no clue where they were or the lay of the land there or whatever, and they were captive. And there was a quote, I was trying to find it. It was actually the, um, like the when they were being sworn in or whatever, what they would say, the policing. And it was, this was, actually in the 1700s, and like I said, you know, a lot of it has has changed and evolved, but there's still a lot of this still in the blood system that hasn't been dealt with, but their oath in North Carolina was I, and then they would say their name, do swear that I will as searcher for guns, swords, and other weapons upon the slaves in my district, faithfully and as privately as I can discharge the trust reposed in me as the law directs to the best of my power, so help me God. So they were actually, their task was to go after slaves. 
And then there was another one where it was like if you were a, it was from the law enforcement again that, you know, if you were a slave owner and if, and they put in uh, Native Americans and blacks and, um, I can't remember the third one anyway, that they were considered property. They were not people. And so if someone owned them and the slave, you know, got out of hand and they had to correct them and the correction ended in the death of the slave, that the property owner would not be held accountable. It would be as if the event never happened. And so those are just some of the things that I just found yesterday. And I haven't really got them in order yet. Yeah, if if that, if looking at that is resonate something for you and as you're holding your breath as you're listening to what Jeannie's sharing, I would suggest taking some worksheets and uh, head to your nearest theater uh, this weekend and see the Quentin Tarantino movie, Murders of the Flower Moon. True story back in the 20s. And just, just pure unadulterated theft and insanity perpetrated on the Native American population just beyond comprehension. So certainly a place where the injustice will resonate if you have any issues of justice to forgive. They'll be resonated. And uh, when enough people clean up those sorts of things in their minds and bring the active presence of love and conscious action toward this world of injustice, then the world of injustice is going to begin to heal as each person takes on the injustice within themselves. So if you haven't seen it, it just came out last weekend. We went out opening day, and it was profoundly powerful and definitely resonated a lot. Murders of the Flower Moon. So, Miss Jeannie, do we have anybody on the phone queue with a hand up or anything happening in the chat room? No, there are no hands up. Like I said, this is probably the most people that we've had on the switchboard in a long time. Oop, we had a hand just now go up. Well, just Awesome. Here. Say hello. Oh, there he is. I believe it's Dusty904. You're on the air. Oh, well, aloha, everybody. Good to hear your voice. Aloha. Welcome. How are you, sir? Yeah, thank I am doing pretty darn well today. I'm grateful to be alive. Nice. I have and I want I'm with you, you on that. About... Oh, you are? Oh, okay. I figured you were. You're still um, yakking away on this program, so it's all good. Um. You were talking about indigenous peoples uh, earlier, and um, I saw the most outrageous thing one time. And, and I mean, I've hung out with a lot of indigenous. I've been very fortunate in the West. I've hung out with some pretty, pretty. Um, I don't know, uh, sort of the inner sanctum as well as powwows and things like that. Some indigenous people. So I had little backgrounds in it. Right. So one time I saw a. About 20 years ago, I saw a program on PBS, and they were saying how the uh, when the first quality film cameras and the audio recording devices came out in the early 30s, that they sent a whole team down to the uh, Mississippi Delta uh, to capture the... Uh, 
the, the song and dance because the very last of those that were actually slaves coming over on the ship way back when were in their 80s and, you know, they're about gone and they wanted to catch it before it was gone. A very noble cause. And uh, I watched this program and I, I just went, oh, my God, and I howled. And I, I, I thought, I wonder if they'll ever figure this out because what, you know, what I was sort of expecting from um, those folks that came over from Africa when they did their, uh, it was just a drum and a dance in a circle, was a little more of a, a polyphonic, like a boom, boom, ticka, 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 boom, boom, ticka, boom, boom, you know, something that had a little bit of uh, intricacy to it. Right. And it wasn't. It wasn't. It was exactly what I had seen in indigenous people's powwows. And and what had happened, of course, and I think uh, I think Ginny touched on this maybe, but um, the... Um, uh, the, the the folks that came over from Africa and the indigenous peoples of this continent were both considered subhuman and about the same, and were all thrown in the same you know big pile down there, and uh, so they mixed cultures a lot, and um, the uh, African folks evidently took on the indigenous peoples. Um, it was close enough. Anyway, uh, their musical thing. And what was interesting about it, uh, well, there was a couple things very interesting about it. First of all, I knew, I just knew it wasn't, you know, what they came over on the bow with. It, it, it came from this, this continent, mostly. And the first uh, major powwow that I ever went to, I was expecting something pretty wowzer, and there was a lot of people. And what, and what there was about eight guys, and they would take a maybe a mm, twenty inch, twenty four inch poop drum, which just means just mostly it's just a, a frame with a skin on it, and and it had a cords, and it would, they would put sticks in the ground so that you could hang the drum about two feet off the ground, three feet off the ground, and these guys would beat the drum off. They didn't do a boom boom chicka chicka boom boom or even a even the uh, um, the Hollywood version of boom ding 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 boom ding ding. What this made the red man red? That they didn't even do that. It was just boom 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 boom. And as a drummer, I, I was like, "What? Come on, that's kind of boring, ain't it? I mean, but I mean, they, but all these guys were serious. I mean, they were part of the inner circle of whatever it was, so they got to beat on the drum." And it was just that, but I, you know, I, 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 you know, after my first realization that it wasn't something that uh, a, a modern day drummer ordinarily would be immediately attracted to, I just started paying attention. Now all the people in the circle, they got in a huge circle and they did the exact same thing as as the as they did in this 1930s uh, uh, black and white film that I saw from the Smithsonian. It was they would kind of put their hands, arms on each other's kind of arm shoulders and circle counterclockwise and just do this little shuffle dance, just a little shuffle to the left. That was all it was. And time was the beat. But the beat, and here's what was so amazing for me, 
was the beat was just boom, boom, boom. It was just, just a pulse. But after a while, I mean, it didn't take very long either. I went, oh, my God, everything's pulsing with this. The ground, the grass, the people, me, everything was going boom, boom. I mean, it was the earth heard it. And people were dancing to that, and it was so powerful, and yet it was just a steady pulse. And um, uh, I, I was amazed at how powerful that could be, just that, uh, within, with the intention, of course. And they had all the right intention. But the Smithsonian right. talked that they had, got, had gotten in, uh, you know, African American. But no, I don't think they did. I wonder how long it took them to figure it out, if if they ever have. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, and how the music, I mean, it's, well, what it, and also what had happened was, of course, the, uh, the, uh, the cavalry had taken away the drums. Uh, When the Lakota Sioux did their Sundance, they were starting to use their drums again for their spirituality. Uh, the uh, the evil powers in lighter skins uh, took away the drums because they didn't they knew that that was also part of how they went to war, but it was their spirituality within it, and um, uh, uh, so so consequently um, uh, the um, uh, indigenous peoples had no problem hooking up with the uh, with the uh, dark skinned um, Right. Anyway, it was, it was a beautiful merger of those two, even though it was force. I like I like the fact that um, that uh, uh, those two aspects at least seem to have gotten along real well, at least musically. And, and I thought you might find that interesting. Yeah, that is interesting. And you know, when you think about. Uh, a lot of people in this culture want to be sophisticated, and they don't realize that the word sophisticated, the root of it really means fake or phony. And uh, you, you point out the tied in what Jeannie's conversation was, uh, tied into one of the ways that these indigenous cultures were obliterated was to make sure that everything that worked in their culture, from their language to their music, to their ceremonies, to their healing, that everything had to be obliterated. And you realize most of what, when you think about that, we realize that most of civilization, what we call civilization, is built on the obliteration of the indigenous energetic patterns that work to produce a real life. Yeah, I, I yeah. love what uh, Mahatma Gandhi said when they said, "What did, what did, they asked him what he thought of Western civilization, he said he thought it would be a good idea. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. I, yeah, yeah, you know. it's, it's crazy. <laughs> oh, yeah. And you yeah. look at how much effort today is being put into obliterating people's choice. You know, oh, no just, kidding. You know, it's wake-up time. And uh, that, that mindset of control, when you, if you uh, watch that film, Murders of the uh, Flower Moon. The mindset that's presented there to me, as I was watching it, it was like I was just watching the political game unfold in America in the last few years. 
it's, it's the same mindset that is the mindset of, you know, I'm going to own everything, and it doesn't matter who I kill or who I destroy or who I offend, or you know, it's just, you know, and I'll I'll develop the so sophisticated methods, the fake and the fakeness to make what I'm doing appear real. And if anybody catches me at it, it was interesting. The uh, the one line in the film, the 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 guy who organizes the crime, which is just monstrous, like. Mm, huge and monstrous against the Osage Indians when mm -hmm. he gets caught and his henchmen start to fall in line he's got one of them that he's trying to get him to come over and you know the line was just so it was like t listening to some of the conversations we're hearing today literally his words were I have the best lawyers Oh no! Like he's telling his he's telling his henchmen, "Don't testify against me. Come, my lawyers will take care of you. I have the best lawyers." And you could just see the whole mindset laid out in that film that uh, mm -hmm. it's expressing so deeply today in the world. It's just bizarre. And as Jeannie said, you know, and I don't remember who it was that originally put that quote out there, but uh, if we refuse to become aware of history. We're going to play it out again and again. I, there's actually a book about that. I think it's called Why Is This Happening to Me Again? Something like that. So, yeah. I about definitely that. wake up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's interesting about that history. I've, I've really had that hammered into me the last, I don't know, for a while, because here in St. Augustine Beach, um, there's some kids and they're tourists. And I see, I see, uh, and everybody walks around with pretty much the smartphone duct tape to their head sort of thing, you know. And and then right. and what's that? And I don't mind, you know. That I don't care about a lot of stuff, but when history, just what you said, they don't know history. They don't know. I, I, this gener the millennials don't know probably twenty percent of the ten percent of the history you know, and uh, which is unfortunate because again you know that old thing you, know, you got to learn from history you repeat it and uh, nobody cares because everybody is caught up in the I mean it's scary to watch the the, the, the digital the, the drug thing working its yeah. way through well and also. You know, in in education, look at you know we're back to burning books. We've got a faction in this country that's burning books and literally obliterating truth in education and and codifying it as law that you're not allowed to teach the truth. <laughs> you're not allowed to teach what actually happened. We have a story and it's a cover story and it's one that you know the old the old adage that uh, says in war it's the winners who write the history and. Yep. That particular mindset, you know, if you extrapolate it out, when you watch the uh, the murders of the Flower Moon, you watch the protagonist in it and the horrendous scam that takes place, and you can just extrapolate it out. That's exactly what's going on today. It is a mindset. And, you know, if you go back to Yeshua 2,000 years ago and, you know, they ask him the question, you know, what's most important in the law? And what he talks about, he doesn't say, as the Greeks tell us, that he says, love God, love neighbor as yourself. That's history changed. 
he talks about a mindset. He talks about how to achieve a mindset where truth and human life is available. And uh, if we don't have that, then you know, all we've got is that unending cycle of insanity. Yes, and you know, I know everybody is, uh, gets high on the, the thought of, oh, civilization and Prometheus, however you want to say, is the big deal. But that seems to be where the problem started. I mean, from that point on, uh, you know, they talk about World War II being total war, like it was the first one. Uh-uh. That's been no, going on. Not, not by a long shot. Yeah, yeah, and it's going to keep going on because that's the pattern that, uh, you know, power corrupts, absolute power kills everybody, you know, that one and um, sort of thing. And uh, But that is a repeating pattern, and I wish, if I, I, I wish that, Everybody understood that, and they went, oh, let's just see what we can do about not doing that. And in, in my fantasy, and boy, this is, of course, pure uh, whoopee-doo fantasy, but it, I used to kid around about being a king of, uh, excuse me, emperor of North America and how I would change things. And of course, now it's, you'd have to be emperor of the whole world to make anything work. But um, if 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 I could just have my brothers, I would take our military and start converting as much of it as fast as possible into echo warriors for the environment. Working with the world, so, the, the physical planet, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, instead of when uh, Bush is with his ploy to have the second Iraq thing going on, and Katrina's over here and people dying, the soldiers should have been here doing whatever they, you know, they, they would have learned in, in echo training or anything, you know what I mean, over here, helping those folks in New Orleans. And right, them. right. Now, that, if there's such an organized force, it would be beautiful. I mean, it's certainly not going to happen anytime soon, but oh, that's one of my Okay, well, I appreciate that. You know, if enough, if enough minds can conceive it and we can take it to critical mass, it will happen. Yes. So I'd hold that. the space with you that that shift can take place, that, that sanity can rule. Well, yeah, and, you know, I know this much. Sanity can rule in you. It can rule in you or anybody. I, it can rule in me, but I don't know that I can necessarily convince the rest of the world, but I don't have to. If I'm living it fully enough, and you're living it fully enough, and, you know, I mean, it can only do a little bit of that hundreds monkey thing, you know. So, I, well, Yeshua, the I physicist, know. Yeshua, the physicist said a little leavening leavens a whole loaf, and he wasn't talking about bread. Right. He was talking about the My take is he was talking about the possibility that we could actually discover ourselves as the active presence of love and begin to live as that. And when enough people do that, when enough people have the tools, the technology, and are inspired to do the work, then there's going to be an energetic shift throughout the whole of humanity. So that's the hope I hold out for it. Right. Uh, right. Um, and I wanted to share something. Uh, I guess we got, yeah, we got a little bit of time. Something that be- beautiful in, in a very 
you know, well, kind of off the wall way, but it is beautiful. I have a half-sister I didn't even know about until about 20, 25 years ago. And uh, she's 83 or 4, and she had everything in the world wrong with her. I mean, she was in living hell. And, I mean, she, you know, she was... She was the kind of person that needed a morphine injection every day just just to breathe, you know, that kind of thing. And she was mm. trying to live and trying to be, you know, a, a big girl and all that. And she just, it was just, it, I, I would call her every day. And she decided, she said, well, you're my prayer partner. So I would, okay, you bet. And every day I'd go there. And um, uh, she was, and, I, and I'm, I'm not trying to offend anybody here, but I'm just stating something that has a beautiful outcome, uh, I think. Um, she was a very, very rigid, hardcore, uh, what can you call it, fundamentalist Christian. In other words, the current version of the, whatever it is, Bible, um, uh, is law. Period. That's it. End of story. That's the only wisdom that's ever been written in, in the creation of the universe, right there. And 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 for her, it was one and done. You you believe in Jesus, or you go to hell. You believe in Jesus, you right. go to hell. One and done. And I went, wow, with that kind of and and my my experience has been so different than that. And um. That I was, so she was in the process of dying. Okay, and you know, anyway, so I I was wondering how that was going to be for her, um, because she had heart. I mean, it was one of these dichotomies. She had a big heart. Oh God, she had a big heart. Um, and she just every time I talked with her, I just saw kind of a white kind of glow like like a cloud that was, that was mm-hmm. and um when she did find it though for about two three days I and her niece who helped her through the last two weeks who flew up there who flew to that you know two thousand miles to be with her and help her we both had a sense that she was just Kind of floating in a sea of love. Hmm. That that, was it. and and I went wow. So no matter all this stuff, you know, well, that people like me, I like I like trying to get all the all the circuitry of how everything works and all that, and 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 for my money at least, her circuitry wasn't quite on point, but nonetheless. She had love, and she floated in love when she died. And and I started thinking back through history, and even the pharaohs of ancient Egypt were considered divine. It all boiled down to, uh, at some point, there was one of the, the gods in the mythology that had a scale, and, you would put, and the pharaoh would put his heart on one side, and if his heart wasn't heavier bigger than the weight on the other side. He wasn't going where he was supposed to go. So if, no matter where you go in history, it kind of if you go to the kind of the inner inner part of it, it's love. Just what you've been talking about. Sweet. 
Awesome. Well, it's nice to be touched by that, isn't it? Oh, man, man. And just, you know, yeah. And when it does, because I, I, I don't know about you, but I can find myself, uh, especially living without a partner, uh, a mind-wandering, some stupid inane thing that means nothing. And I'll snap out of it and come back. Next worksheet. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's, that's, <laughs> awesome. I'm a work project. I, I'm we're in, pro, in process, rather. <laughs> uh, it, it's, it is sweet. It is sweet. And, and, uh, yeah. But I, that was such a lesson to, to see her, to feel her, and to have it verified by a, uh, the next a Gen Xer yeah. who was pretty sensitive herself and felt and the same thing that nice. I did about the love. Sweet. Awesome. All right, sir. Well, any other thoughts for you today? Well, um, oh, yeah, I got tons of thoughts, but I, I think I'll just shag out of here for now and thank you all for the program on Friday. I try to catch it when I can. All right. Have a blessed one. Blessings. Take care. You, you too. Bye-bye. All right. We have another hand well, up. Jeannie. All right. Let's go for it. And it is Mr. Joe, 864. You're on the air. Are you out in the field? Oh, Joe, she got you before I got the chance. That's amazing. Good work, Jeannie. Joe, you're muted, apparently. We can't hear you. Got to push your mute button, sir. Oh, maybe he stepped away from the phone. Maybe he's outstanding in his field. (laughs) Give me a second to see if he shows up. Hello, Yosef. Oh, he must have had to step away from the phone. All right, well, do you have anybody else? Miss Jeannie with a hand up. No, the only one. Well, then I'm just going to review a few thoughts from uh, from the earlier part of the week where we've been talking about uh, what it takes to heal. And one of the key thoughts that you know, we covered in, in talking about this is that if not all of our wounds, many, and therefore our pain, et cetera, are rooted in genetically inherited traumas, the mind will organize those energetic patterns from within physiology into pictures that make us look like there are things in the world that are the cause of what those inherited traumas are. But if we're in trauma, it's because there's trauma inside of us. Multi-generational assaults reinforced through unconscious actions generation after generations, when they're stored and repeated, it becomes the, the environment in which we swim, the mental environment. Remember those opening words in the book of John that don't say in the beginning was the word and the word became flesh, but rather in the beginning was the mind energy and the mind energy became flesh. 
and to remember that, well, the mind makes it look like each pain perception is different and separated. And when you think about how the mind does that, you know, there's this database of pain, and you think about how the mind makes it, puts it into a thousand different pictures, and so being in a thousand different pictures, it looks like a thousand different things, when the truth is it comes from one root, one base. And at the same time, you know, if we bring Einstein's thought in, to me this kind of keys in, if you think you're separate or separated from the rest of humanity, you're living in an optical delusion. So the very idea that I'm over here and you're over there and there's no connection between us, I mean, that's what allows for war. Einstein says that separation, that is an optical delusion. In other words, if we could raise the rate of vibration in which our mind receives information, we would see that we are energetically connected to everyone. We can't extract from life. But our minds have been trained. And in the same way that we separate out, oh, this pain comes is, is related to that, that pain's that, that one's that. You know, they're all different causes. The truth is they're all one and they're within us. And that same act of separating those things is what, I'm not sure whether it's the cause of or just a reflection of the fact that we bought into this idea that we're separated from each other. You know, if I could raise the rate of vibration in which my eye receives information, I would see the information. My brain would be able to respond to the information that shows that we're all tied together, that, that we're not a, a multitude of beings. We are cells in a being. You know, if, you, if you look at the ancient teachings, they talked about what they called the mystical body of Christ. It didn't have to do with Yeshua. They were talking about the embodiment of this human presence of love is singular, though it expresses through many cells in that one body. And each of us is a cell. And, and the, the thing that the world does its best to convince us of is that we're not a cell in that body. In fact, we're the opposite. We're the offense of that body. And instead of bringing into expression our true nature through this instrument called a body-mind unit, we get lost in these generational errors, these generational patterns. And it's those dissociated traumas in the thousand different forms that can show it to us that when activated obscures the subtle, permanently available experience of ourselves as the truth of who we are, as love. So the optical delusion. I'm not sure which is cause and which is effect. But the fact that we can pretend all of our pain is separate, all of, all of the different places we project our pain, it, it allows us to separate it and we end up in this optical delusion that we are separate. 
And it's hard for the mind to conceive of anything other than separation. We've been so deeply ensconced in it. This block to the awareness that we are truly created essence of love is never imposed from the outside. They're internal. They're removable. If one has the technology to do so, and that's what we're here to work with. All healing is literally the return to love, and it's a strictly inside job. And the act of removing intergenerational trauma is the true definition of forgiveness. And that takes us down to just the last minute or so. And so I'm going to just say thank you, everybody, for joining us. Hope all is well in your world. Create the best year yet of your eternal life. Have an awesome weekend and blessings. Appreciate each and every one of you. Thank you for listening to Mind Shifters Radio with Dr. Michael Rice and myself, Jeannie Rice, and Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pache as we present the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We are here for two hours every Monday through Friday from 12 noon to 2 o'clock Eastern Time on Mind Shifters Radio. For more information on Aramaic forgiveness, please visit www.whyagain.org. That's www.whyagain.org.